Welcome to Canada's History's Stories Behind the History podcast. I'm Kate Jamet, Senior Editor of Canada's History Magazine. And in this podcast, we take a deeper look at some of the stories in our award-winning print publication. In our June-July 2022 issue, Ken McGugan writes about the Danish explorer Jens Munk and his disastrous 1619 expedition in search of the Northwest Passage. But what is the Northwest Passage and why were so many European sailors willing to risk their lives to find it? Ken McGugan is the author of 15 books, including five bestsellers about Arctic exploration and has won numerous awards for his work. He joins me today to discuss the bold and gruesome history of the search for the Northwest Passage. Ken, welcome to the podcast. Bold and gruesome. We got to love it. Thanks. <laughs> so I have to admit that I am morbidly fascinated by these stories of these explorers who meet a grisly death uh, while searching for the Northwest Passage. So I'm so glad that you can join us and talk to us about it. Uh, so what is the Northwest Passage? And maybe you could explain how it sort of existed in people's imaginations before they actually knew if it actually existed in reality or not. Yes, absolutely. Well, the passage is indeed a, a concept. It's an idea. Um, the idea is uh, getting from Europe over to, to Cathay, which embodies uh, India and China. And it was driven you know, uh, by profit-seeking, by merchants, uh, mainly in, in Britain initially, who, um, who faced a particular challenge in the 17th century and the late 16th. The Portuguese and the Spanish uh, controlled uh, the trade routes to China and India, and uh, they were coming home with all these wonderful goods, and uh, the merchants in Britain scratched their heads and said, Gee, you know, it'd be awful good to get in on this action. And, and how are we going to do it? Well, you know, if we're here and, uh, you know, Cathay is just over there, why don't we just, you know, find a way through? You know, I call it the Straits of Anian or, or the Northwest Passage, you know, get from here to there. How, how difficult can that be? So that's how the idea was born. It seemed like a, a good idea at the time. And this passage would be over the top of what we now call Canada, right? That was sort of the idea of like to go north over top of that continent that was kind of blocking their way. Exactly. They had no idea even that it was a continent. They just knew, well, look, I mean, uh, we, we're here, uh, they're there, we can, it's not a continent, it's just a little bit of land, you know, or maybe, uh, should be sea all the way, uh, open sailing, and uh, let, let's do it. So they wanted to go to China, to India via the West, rather than going around the Horn of Africa, which is where the Portuguese were going, right? Yeah, so they had all kinds of Portuguese and Spanish pirates out there plundering the ships. So, so that wasn't really viable. So how were they going to do this? So it's very much a, a European idea, uh, you know, the Northwest Passage. Okay, and so tell me about how they then first started out trying to find this thing? And who were some of the very earliest people in, who tried this? And then what happened to them? Well, the most prominent early one would be Martin Frobisher in the late 1500s. And he, he actually went three times. Um, he ended up, uh, you know, they, they were looking for, for gold. Well, he, he thought he found gold. <laughs> he piled his ships high with uh, 
these black rocks that seemed to have all kinds of gold in them. And of course, it ended up being fool's gold, which was kind of unfortunate uh, from his, his point of view. Uh, it's, it's not easy uh, sailing in these tiny little wooden ships uh, in some of the heaviest seas in the world. Not as bad as down, you know, uh, the Drake Passage and so forth, but it can be pretty bad up north there and crossing Davis Strait. Uh, so, um, so he was uh, he was early on, <clears throat> but then then came uh, 1610, uh, another another figure which who was well known. That's Henry Hudson. But these guys had a certain mindset. Um, Hudson was known as a, for example, well, they were swashbucklers. They were, you know, daring individuals. Hudson was known to take his orders and head out and see if the orders were working. And, um, well, that wasn't working. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to go, I'm, I'm deciding what I'm going to do. Yeah, I, I kind of enjoy these guys in that respect. So Hudson, um, <clears throat> he takes a few voyages around, and then he uh, manages, you know, to cross Davis Strait, enter in through Hudson Strait, which had been known, but no one had gone into Hudson Bay. Okay, you know, you're, you're heading west is what you're doing. Oh, Hudson Bay, whoa, this is a big, a big place. And, um, and at this point, you have no idea, you, you know. You can't see uh, the other side, so you're sailing along, and um, well, winter comes on. That, that's always a bit of a problem, uh, as, as you probably know. Anybody listening probably knows the northern Canadian winter. I, I grew up in Montreal myself, so I, I know a bit about winter. Um, but winter up north can be, you know, still more dreadful. So Hudson's with his man. I think he's, he's got 20, you know 21 or 22 men. Small little ship made of wood, right? And um, by the time you get down in the su southern reaches of Hudson Bay, down in James Bay and so forth, okay, winter's coming on. And uh, you're getting frozen in the ice. So, okay, and that's okay. We can get through this. And uh, they do manage to get through that first winter, but it is bitter. And uh, when spring starts to come, um, the guys are saying, okay, we, we've had just about enough of this. Uh, let's head for home. And Hudson's saying, oh, oh, no, no, no. Wait a minute, guys. We're not going to quit. We're going to keep looking for, the, for this passage, you know, through the other side here. This is how it's going to be. And he sets up a chart and he shows them, here's, uh, here's what it looks like. Uh, and uh, they are not convinced, <laughs> to say the least. And, and don't forget, you're also shut up on this tiny little ship. So there's personality conflicts arising by now. Anyway, <clears throat> comes the day, a couple of guys lead a mutiny. And uh, they, Hudson has two boys, two young men with him, including one is his son. Anyway, uh, the mutineers put uh, Hudson and eight people into this little boat, this basically a big rowboat, and say, okay, guys, not give them any food or anything. Okay, guys, uh, we've had about enough of you, so we'll see you later. So then there's the, the incredible image, certainly fixed in my mind, 
of Hudson and this guy desperately rowing after the uh, after the ship as it sails away. The ship just raises its sails and goes back to England and makes it back there. And um, they tell a story. Of course, this is <laughs> they could be charged with mutiny and 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 hung. But a couple of these guys now they realize like Robert Bylot, he's a pretty good navigator. And if these guys have already been over. And, you know, looking for the Northwest Passage, they have a pretty good idea. So we'll just charge them with murder and acquit them, and then they can go go back out on another voyage. So that's the kind of thing that <laughs> that went on. So these mutineers, they actually got acquitted because the merchants or whoever figured they were too valuable to lose. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's basically it. Well, I mean, it's all interpretation, right? But... Uh, Lo and behold, the guys are back on a ship, you know, or a year or two later. So figure it out, right? <laughs> so, but Hudson, he dies, right? I mean, he, he perishes. Yeah, he disappears. The bodies have never been found. Yeah, it's a fascinating story, but certainly Hudson was never heard from again alive, that's for sure. Wow. Did they think that they had reached the Pacific Ocean initially when they went into Hudson Bay? Did they think, hey, this is it, this is great? Yeah, well, they wondered, because they did do some exploring down in James Bay, so there was a, a coastline trending north, so maybe not, but surely there's a way through, is what they were, is what they were thinking. Uh, so that was, yeah, so that led then directly to the end of Monk expedition. A few years later, uh, Monk is thinking, well, why should these British navigators get all the glory and he's a, a very he's a veteran navigator as well and you know he's got something of that same mindset uh of you know hell take the hindmost i'm going for the northwest passage and we already know that if you go through here you all you have to do then is find the way out on the other side right so they knew how to get into hudson bay now the question is how to get out of Hudson Bay to the riches of China and India, right? That was in their mind. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. That's what they thought they were doing. So I know we have your whole article about Jens Monk, but Jens's expedition does not end well either. <laughs> well, no, it doesn't. He, he, he gets across Hudson Bay and um, he goes into uh, what is now uh, the Churchill River. That's not what he called it, but that's that's what we call it now, the Churchill River. And he, he manages to go in there and land and ends up spending a winter there. Um, by that time, he, I think he lands with 64 men, including himself, and 61 die. And <laughs> incredibly, he and two others, they, they'd arrived with two ships, he and two others managed to make it back to Denmark, an extraordinary feat, really. Three guys making it all the way back uh, across Hudson, through Hudson Strait, uh, you know, across Davis Strait, back to Europe. An extraordinary nav navigator, Jens Monk. Um, and uh, <clears throat> yeah, it was, uh, it was a complete and utter wipeout. The worst disaster, uh, certainly up until that time. Okay, I'm now a merchant in... Europe. And I've seen what has happened to Henry Hudson. He gets marooned and dies. His crew comes back and says, this man is, was crazy. We, he wanted to keep going west. No way in hell. Jens Monk goes, 
61 out of 64 people die. <laughs> why then? I mean, why did these merchants and kings and queens not just give up and say, look, we'll risk pirates around the Horn of Africa <laughs> it, because this is just doom. We're just sending people into the ice to die. Like, what was it that kept people going? Well, you know, I think there's something in humankind. Why, why are we sending people, you know, up to the moon and, and you know, circle the moon and we're heading for Mars? Uh, it's out there. We can maybe do it. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, individually, the guys who do it, and it's all guys at this point, it's going to be fantastic. I mean, I'm going to be immortal. I'm going to be in history if I can just find this passage and sail on through. I mean, it's fantastic. So the, the merchants are backing me for their usual monetary reasons, and they're finding adventurers because there's always plenty of those, not plenty of those, but a few of those who are very highly competent outdoors and up for a challenge, like we're going to climb Everest. It's the same idea. Why, why, why did we start climbing Everest? Why are we going around climbing all these mountains? You know, if you look at it logically, there's maybe, it's maybe hard to explain, but until you, you know, accept this drive in, in, in humankind, I think, to, to, to go and to see, you know, and to search out, and I'm going to be the guy who's going to do it. So that kind of thing, you know, you know psychology, it's going to take someone with a, more of a psychological background than me to, to explain it all. And was there something in it monetarily for the sailors, like not just the leader of the expedition, the captain, but also he had to recruit people to, to go with him, right? I mean, they had to have some kind of incentive, the ordinary sailor guy, to get on that ship, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, the convention arose that, well, certainly there was a lot of piracy on the high seas, eh? And uh, if you took a ship, the captain decided, okay, we're going to, share this around that was that was the deal so if you were on the ship when you uh, you know caught a uh, you know an incredibly wealthy merchant vessel um you would get the um <clears throat> you'd get part of the share so that would be pretty cool so you know in addition to your to your salary the, the these are tough times and uh, guys are desperate for uh, work or, you know, trying to stay alive. I, I've got a wife and two kids. So I want to send them some money. So, you know, yeah, so it's the usual thing. So these sailors, if they managed to get to the wealth of India and China, they would get some kind of a share of, of whatever this ship was going to buy and presumably take yes. home to England, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So that would be, a big, that would be an impetus for them. Until, like Hudson's men, they got caught in James Bay and spent a winter there. That would cool their ardor. For sure. So explain to me, though, because I've always wondered about the timing. Let's say you're leaving from England. You have to sail across the Atlantic. You have to then sail past Hudson Bay. You have to, even if you knew exactly where you're going, you have to sail all the way across, get out on the other side of Alaska, and then get to China. How would the timing work to do that? And could you actually do it without getting frozen in by the winter? Is there enough of a window of time there to get through in one of those old big sailing ships? No, there's, there's probably not. Because you're still talking back in this time, you know, the little ice age is in full force. So it was colder. 
And like now, now with global warming, we see the passage opening up a little bit more, well, quite a bit more. But, you know, even into the 19th century, um, it would open up, but not in a big way and not everywhere. Some areas just stayed frozen. And, you know, so they were dealing with that on top of everything else. So at the very, very best case, it would take at least one winter um, at that time and given given that technology, at least one winter, two-step process. Go in, winter over, carry on. So at some point they realized, okay, it's we're not gonna do it in one season. We have to go, we have to let our ship get frozen, frozen into the ice for the whole entire winter and then start off again in the spring. That was That was sort of what they realized, right? Well, that's basically right. I mean, okay, that's what happened with John Ray, for example, who was working for the Hudson's Bay Company. He, he just signed on as a surgeon. He thought it was a summer job. They sail in on the Prince of Wales. They sail in, they load up the ship, and then they start out. But, they, you know, the ice is terrible. They couldn't get out. They had to return around, go back, spend the winter in the southern reaches of the bay, Charlton Island. And they're frozen in. So, you know, and, and they're not really ready for that. They, they aren't hunters for the most part. Ray was a hunter, but most of the others didn't adapt well. People are dying on the ship. You know, the ice conditions could be bad, you know, and, you know, the storms are forcing you back. But guys got frozen in the ice, even just going between uh, uh, Greenland and, and Hudson Bay. Uh, they get, especially if they were going farther north, because they realized after a while, into the 19th century, well, late, late, late 1700s. Um, gee, we're not gonna, it doesn't look like it's through here. So, so they started going farther north into in what's known mainly as Lancaster Sound. And that would prove uh, more viable, um, <laughs> but <laughs> complicated bit of business. I wanna talk about the Inuit people who obviously were living there and who encountered these somewhat crazy Europeans coming over. Uh, but maybe first, let's let's touch. Can we touch briefly on Franklin? I mean, maybe the most famous, uh, you know, legendary failed Northwest Passage expedition. Tell tell us a little bit about Franklin. Yeah, well, he he sailed in 1845 from just south of London. It, it was May, and <clears throat> they all called in in Orkney. Uh, which is where so many uh, HBC guys uh, came from, uh, a place called the Loggins Well. They would take on some fresh water. Then they go across, and uh, and Franklin, you know, he thought he was doing pretty well. He, uh, it's been a matter of putting it together what happened, right? But he wintered over on one of the most famous historical sites in the Arctic now, on Beachy Island, 1845-46, after probing north for a bit. And then he's, you know, the ice breaks up and he starts south. And the ship gets, the ships, two of them, Erebus and Terror, they, they get trapped in the ice. There ensues, yeah, the, the, the worst catastrophe in the, in the history of Arctic exploration. How many men die in the Franklin expedition? They all die, right? They all died. I think there were 129, including Franklin. So that's double the Jens Monk uh, catastrophe. But the Franklin expedition is kind of interesting, right? Because 
By this time, people have already figured out, like you said, it's going to take two sailing seasons. We know we're going to be frozen in the ice. Franklin's ready for this. And they've also figured out, okay, we can't go by Hudson Bay. It's going to be a dead end. Uh, if we're going to find this Northwest Passage, we're going to have to go further north. And so he does. And the island, like you mentioned, that he overwintered on, Beachy Island, it's way beyond the Arctic Circle. It's, it's further north than Baffin Island. Uh, he goes up there, he gets frozen in ice, all goes according to plan. So what, how do things then go so terribly wrong? He did get trapped in the ice after he went south from, from Beachy Island. And, and, okay, you're talking about what happened. That, that's, that's the greatest mystery in the history of Arctic exploration. And people have been arguing about it since 1847, 48. I mean, uh, trying to find it, figure out what had happened. And... Uh, <clears throat> Well, actually, I write about this in, in my in my forthcoming book. Uh, you know, a number of theories have been put forward as to what happened. Because look, uh, James John Ross and James Clark Ross had spent four winters in the ice, trapped not far away from where Franklin was, down at the bottom of Prince Regent Inlet. They, they had managed to survive and find their way back into the the main uh, channel there in the north, and managed to get hitch a ride home after four winters in the Arctic. Okay, so then the question becomes, how come, that's just one example, how come the Rosses could survive four winters in the Arctic and Franklin perished after a couple of winters? He's supposed to have all this um, food he brought with him, these state-of-the-art ships. Uh, yeah, so... What happened, that, that, that has been the biggest mystery. Wow, there's lots of mysteries. So we've got Henry Hudson's mystery, we've got the Franklin mystery. But help me with this, Ken. So after Franklin overwintered on Beachy Island, why did he then go south? Why didn't he continue going west toward China and India, which was his ultimate destination? I think of the Northwest Passage as, think of it as two channels one in the north and one in the south. The southern channel is along the uh, Arctic coast of Canada. By the time Franklin arrived and, and went in there uh, on, on his voyage, they knew of those two channels. You go in through Lancaster Sound. Now, they had got cut off by this incredible mass of ice. There's no going through all the way through straight. But they knew that along the coast, because, okay, uh, Samuel Hearn in 1771 had become the first to reach the Arctic coast of Canada by traveling with this great uh, indigenous leader, uh, Matonabe. He, he, he hooked up with Matonabe and, and did it, you know, the way that Matonabe did with his Dene Chippewan people. Hearn went along with that and he managed to succeed. He could, he, you know, he could learn from the native peoples. Uh, after that, uh, so he, he, in effect, geographically, planted a flag. Okay, here's the Arctic coast. Okay, they said the Arctic coast. Okay, so then they started looking. Mackenzie went down the Mackenzie River. He was disappointed. He called it the River of Disappointment because he thought he was going all the way to the Pacific. Instead, he finds himself on the coast, northern coast. So there's two points then uh, in the north, and then you got people heading east trying to figure that out. Let's see how far this southern channel uh, extends. So they still didn't know that. Um, they didn't have, uh, you know, fantastic flying ships that could go over 
no drones to send up and see what's over the horizon. So the guys who did well were usually the fur traders traveling with, you know, inevitably, uh, the native peoples, including the Cree and the Ojibwe, who knew how to travel there. The fur traders knew enough, if this guy says it's too dangerous, I better not go this particular way. Uh, you know, whereas Franklin would come in and say, ah, what do they know? I'm, I'm, you know, with the Royal Navy. So, um, but by, by the time he sailed in 1845, they had an idea that, okay, look, we got these two channels, one in the north, one in the south, all we have to do is to connect them. How hard can that be? Just coming in from the east, and they knew they could get out the west. They, they could get out the southern channel, or they believed they did, uh, by going along the coast. So all we have to do is go in here and get down there, get down to the coast. So that's what Franklin was attempting when he got trapped in the ice for good, in effect. Um, yeah, there's a whole saga, you know, of what happened, and there have been countless books, and I'm adding to that number. But... <laughs> Uh, well, well, we hope it will be the definitive one, Ken, and that no one will ever need to write another book about it after. <laughs> well, what was, so, I mean, the picture you're explaining now is a bit more complicated than the original where it was just coming in on ships, because now you have fur traders going over land, they're going down different rivers, they're, they've got these guides and uh, from mm -hmm. various different Indigenous groups. So it's it's kind of getting like a bit more crowded up there as they're all sort of from multi-pronged approach to try to find this this passage is what I'm sort of imagining. But what, what was the role then, and this is a broad question, but of the Indigenous people in finding or helping to find the passage? Because obviously they had local knowledge, but they didn't have like a passage that they traveled through and they could just say, oh yeah, well, here it is, right? They, they didn't do that. No. No, because you know, they were living there. They weren't seeking a passage that would go through there. I mean, they were living in their particular environs and uh, adjusted to the land. But, for example, in 1903-04, when uh, Roel Amundsen became the first to sail the passage, well, how did he do the voyage? How did he find his way between the northern channel and the southern channel? Well, there was a missing link there. That, that was that was the, the, the final link in, in what would become the first navigable passage. And the guy who found that, the explorer who found that in 1854, was this fur trade doctor, John Ray. But he did it with uh, two indigenous people, uh, William Maligbach Jr., the, the Inuk, and uh, Thomas Mistigan, who was an Ojibwe. Because what happened was, Ray was out looking and, and exploring and trying to figure out the lay of the land. And um, he set out with a number of guys, and that, when he was down to four, two of them, you know, were not functioning well. Okay, this is overland. This is man-hauling sleds. This is, this is really tough work. So in the end, there were only two guys that could keep up with him. Like, he was in his late 30s, I think, and they were younger, but they were uh, the indigenous guys who were, who were with him. Mistigan and Uligbuck, and they were the guys he went up uh, along along the coast of, well, this is getting a bit arcane, but along the coast of Boothia, and he, he looked out. See, there'd been a mistake made in the mapping. Uh, because of the uh, terrible weather, James Clark Ross had 
placed a bay where there was actually a strait. Now, Ray went there, and he's traveling across the land, and he looks out, and he says, you know what? He's with these two guys. He's saying, well, that's King William Island over there. We all thought it was King William Land attached to the, to the mainland, but it's not. It's an island, and there's water flowing through here. And that was the way, that was the, the missing link in the, in the first navigable Northwest Passage. When Amundsen came, he came down through what is, became known as Ray Strait. And so that, that was, that little missing link was found essentially by a team of three people, two of whom were these indigenous uh, guys. That's right. But broader than those two individuals, it must have been throughout the history that they were in, that these sailors were encountering, say, Inuit people are sort of asking them, hey, what does the next hundred miles look like or kind of thing? Like, was that part of in play? I mean, in this sort of well, incremental, yes. incremental discovery. Absolutely. Because, okay, so Ray found that particular passage, but the opening up, okay, the Arctic archipelago, Canada's multitude of islands up there and straits and so forth. What really opened it all up was the search for Franklin, which is driven essentially by Lady Franklin, an extraordinary individual in her own right. Okay, but in every case, the search for Franklin, they were relying on Inuit interpreters, like like Tukalitu and Abirbing, and then and hunters to keep them alive. Because at this point, you're talking about Charles Francis Hall and Frederick Schwatka going in the 1860s and 70s. They're traveling Inuit style with the Inuit hunters and interpreters. And they're looking for people. Uh, okay, did you, were you on the ships? Did you meet Franklin? Did you hear about this? Uh, and things like that. So it was the interpreters and so forth who knew, who didn't, hadn't been there themselves oftentimes, but they could talk to the people who had been there because they could speak the language. Hmm. So, so, and it was that search that gradually opened up the archipelago. So people, the, you know, the, the, the British then mapping, okay, yeah, okay, this is how the whole thing fits together. And it's extremely difficult to get through here, uh, <laughs> unless you know what you're doing. And even now, I mean, we hear about ships going aground, I was on one myself. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it's not well charted underwater. There's a lot that's not charted even now. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's it, it, I mean, there are certain routes that are extremely well known. But you put the ship in the middle of the strait. You know, you don't go over to the side here. So if I could, if I could sort of put this all together in a bit of a picture in my head of what's going on, is that... After the initial, so the initial sailors were getting as far as Labrador, and then they were getting as far as Davis Strait, and then they got as far as Hudson Bay, and then they decided we got to keep going west. And then gradually, there are other explorers who are going over land with indigenous people and finding like pieces of the puzzle, like this is what the coast looks like over here. This is what the coast looks like there. And then after you have John Franklin's expedition disappears and Lady Franklin basically sends these people to hunt for him. Then they're exploring even more and saying, these are what the islands look like. They're mapping it. They're gradually putting these 
pieces of the puzzle into place, right? Yeah. So t- tell us a little bit, just to cap this off, tell me about how Roel Amundsen is the first person to actually sail this thing. Well, yeah, he's a, he, he's, he's a Norwegian uh, adventurer and uh, he, 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 he learned how to ski earlier. I mean, he, and he's a smart guy. He, 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 he would later become uh, the first to reach the, the South Pole because of what he learned from the Inuit on, the, on these earlier trips. So he, go, he, uh, he takes his small ship in, and he spends two winters at Joe Haven. Now, Joe Haven had, was not a settlement at this point. His ship was called the Joe. And he found this, okay, things are getting difficult. Um, you know, the weather's turning bad. Winter's coming on. And he sails into this nice harbor, this haven, if you will. And then Inuit discover him, and they begin to trade with him. And uh, so he, you see, he's uh, he's got a dual objective. He's also trying to figure out scientifically location of the North Magnetic Pole. That's a whole dimension here that we haven't really talked about. But it was that dimension that, uh, uh, you know, scientific knowledge had to figure that out. Why were compasses going crazy? Let's figure this out. So they were still embarked on that quest. So Amundsen. Uh, sets up all these observatories. There's a hill there in Joe Haven. You can go up and you can see where they were, his his observatory. So he spends two winters there, and then he carries on through along the Southern Channel. So that's, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, Amundsen, and he credits John Ray. He says, you know, good thing he told me where that was because I wouldn't have got, got, got to Joe Haven. <laughs> so, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so that's how, how Amundsen did it became the first and wired from, you know, the West Coast. Well, that makes it sound so easy. No, I just yeah. sailed right through. <laughs> sure, that's right. Yeah, it, it was hazardous all the way along. And yeah, the, the, you know, these guys are adventurers. There's no question about it. Amazing. And, and, and the obsessiveness that's involved, you know, speaking as a writer, that's what's, that's what's, uh, you know, driving a large part of the interest. It's the obsessiveness of these guys that makes them interesting as characters, if you will, real life characters. They were bent on achieving something. So let's see what happened. By the time they actually got through the North, or Roald Amundsen actually got through the Northwest Passage in 1900 and what would it have been? Four. Okay, so 1904. Mm-hmm. The original purpose. Remember way back that original purpose <laughs> yeah. that you could find China and, and trade and, and you wouldn't have to pass by the pirates and the cave, exactly. you know, around yeah. the Horn of Africa. Does this this original purpose has completely evaporated by that time or is this yes. still? No, you know, they're realizing, well, this is maybe a little wilder than we thought. Um, but, you know, even today, this is a, there's an interesting debate um, and, and a worry, in fact, okay, think about oil tankers plowing through the north, you know, the Northwest Passage, um, you know, and oil spills. Well, it's one thing if it's down off Florida. Well, yeah, you can get the emergency vehicles in there. <laughs> you know, you can get the ships, but something happens in the Northwest Passage. Whoa, that, that, that can take, you know, an oil spill. Wow, that would be something else. Well, the good news, well, quasi-good news on that front is it's much more likely that anybody carrying oil is going to go through along the Russian coast, along what's called the North Sea Route. 
In other words, not in the northwest, but in the northeast. Mm. Um, but but this has gotten more complicated now that Russia has done what it's done geopolitically, and um, people are going to say, "Well, I don't think I want to go along the coast of Russia." <laughs> so <clears throat> we're only. But don't forget, it's also opening up a bit. So there are there may be more ways. There are you know people have identified. Okay, we there are six or seven different ways now now to get through the passive you go over here down here and around this way because it's such a jigsaw puzzle as you say but um and maybe it's gonna you know the ice will reduce enough that they are going through but by then we'll, we'll be in a whole other mess so yeah so it's it's a, it's still complicated is the northwest passage used as a commercial shipping route today yeah a little bit but you know, because it, the reason being that it's it, it's a shorter route uh, than uh, the, you know than than you know going around some of the other ways. But um, you see, it, it, it's so dicey and so forth. So what's happening more in the Northwest Passage is um, adventure travel. Uh, you know, the company I did a lot of travel with was Adventure Canada. You go up there and you see the animals, the polar bears. To meet the people who live there in the settlements, and that kind of thing is, seems to be blossoming, or has been. You know, we, we got COVID there for a while, but yeah. So that is is more what's happening in the Northwest Passage because it's not readily viable at this point. I mean, you, you okay? You can get through if you've got an icebreaker, even if you've got a great big oil tanker. You bring an icebreaker in front of you. And these things ride up on the ice and pound. They pound through the ice in front of the ship behind them. That's how, that's how it, when, when push comes to shove, they pound through the ice behind the icebreaker. Um, mm -hmm. So obviously that's not a, a, an easy way, an easy way to do it. Um, global warming, climate change, maybe, maybe it'll become more viable. There are pros and cons, obviously. Is it international water, or is it considered Canadian water, or who would regulate what can go through? Oh, the now you want to you now you want to get in a fight. Now you want to pick a fight with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Canada says these are Canadian waters. It's obvious to me. The, the USA says no, no, this is these are international waters. So our closest pal. Uncle Sam doesn't agree with what we say is internal. They say, no, this is international. <laughs> so that's, that's where that stands. So the Northwest Passage <clears throat> remains contended and mysteries <laughs> still abound. You got it. <laughs> well, Ken, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for elucidating our listeners about this. And of course, they can pick up any one of your five books about Arctic exploration and the upcoming one. When's that one going to be published? Yeah, that's coming in October. It's called Searching for Franklin, the Royal Navy Man Who Discovered Arctic Catastrophe. Coming soon. <laughs> Sounds fascinating. Thank you so much, Ken. Okay, you take care. Thank you, okay, Kate. Okay, bye. Bye for now. The Stories Behind the History podcast is produced by Canada's History Society. If you enjoyed the podcast, why not subscribe to Canada's History magazine? 
To subscribe or simply to find out more about Canada's History Society, visit us at canadashistory.ca. Our theme music is the Red River Jig, performed by Alex Kusterock from his album Métis Fiddling for Dancing. I'm Kate Jamet, Senior Editor of Canada's History Magazine. Thanks for joining me.